All right, good morning. Welcome to PBC. I'll add my welcome to others. It's good to see everyone. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be worshiping together. I want to start off with a question for you and ask you to just kind of shout it out. Uh, I'll repeat it for the sake of those that are joining us online. What is the first thing that you do in the morning? One of the first things you do in the morning? Pray. Okay. Coffee, yeah. I expected that one to be first, but, you know, we do pray. Uh, other things? Unload the dishwasher. Dishwasher. Unload the dishwasher. All right. You're just showing off for your parents that you're sitting next to. What else? Listen to your roommate unload the dishwasher. Okay. Work out. Work out. Nice job. Kiss wife. Kiss your wife. Good choice. Take the dog for a walk. All right, yeah. So um, personally, I've had a lifelong love affair with the snooze button. Um, and I've, I've been working on this. So I, I used to be kind of a three to four snooze type person, and now I'm down to one. So making progress, you know, working on it. Someone once told me that the first thing you do in the morning sets your tone for the entire day. And if that's true, then, uh, you know, the tone of most of my days is I wish I could go back to sleep. That's uh, what's true for me. But think about these things of kind of what's that first thing that you do? And maybe that's not what sets the tone for our day. But if it isn't, then, then what is? Is there something that we do that kind of establishes us, that, that sets us on a path for what that day is going to be? And how do you figure that out? How do you figure out in the midst of your day, what to do, what not to do, how to spend your time, how to spend your free time, what things to focus on, what's important in your life. We're in uh, the third week now of this series called Return and Rebuild, where we're looking at the book of Ezra, and we're watching a group of people in about the 5th, 6th century BC coming back from Persia, back from exile to Jerusalem, and they're rebuilding the temple. This week, we're in the third chapter, and what we're going to see this morning is the beginning of that effort to rebuild. And what we're going to observe is that the sequence of events is a little bit curious in terms of how they start. We'll see that the first thing they do is that they build the altar first. And we're going to take that as a bit of a metaphor for ourselves to think about how we set priorities, how we choose what's most important in our lives. See, these people had suffered a significant disruption to everything they knew about life. They had lived a reduced version of life for a number of years. Now they are coming back to something, hoping to get back to normal And yet they have to deal with what happened in the past and look towards what the future is going to be. And in the midst of all of that, try to figure out where God fits in. Pretty relevant to where we are, right? (laughs) You can see why we chose this book. They're dealing with all of these themes of nostalgia for the way things used to be. Hope for what the future might hold. Grief at what was lost expectation for what might be gained and trying to find out how God fits into all of that. 
As we begin the passage, we're going to see the first thing they do is born of a sense of unity. So I'm going to read the first several verses. And as I do that, I want you to notice how together this group of people is. This is Ezra 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 and verse 6. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God, altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt honor offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And jumping to verse six, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. You notice that these people were afraid. They were vulnerable. They were afraid of the people they were around. And yet they come together in unity. They gathered as one man, it says. And the first thing they do is they build the altar of God. Now, this is not something that happens every day. I looked through the Old Testament to find all the different places that altars were built. It's actually a fascinating study. So you have Noah is the first person who is said to have built an an altar in Genesis 8. Abraham built four different altars. Jacob built an altar. Moses built an altar. Joshua, Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, and Elijah. It'd actually be a fascinating uh, 10-week Bible study if you're interested. All the references for those altars will be in the notes that we publish after the sermons. But you see how All throughout the Old Testament, people built altars at significant times. And now in Ezra, we have these people coming together to build an altar. And this is the last reference in the Old Testament to an altar being built. So it kind of provides a little bit of new perspective on this altar. And then we hear from this day on the seventh month, offerings were made. Presumably for the next Hundreds of years until the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in the first century. So this moment is really the beginning of something new. A new era for God's people. The question I have for us is what does that look like for us as we rebuild, as we return? What does it look like for us to, to keep God at the center It's kind of a curious thing to start with. I mean, I don't know if you were to build a house, is the first thing you would build to be your dining room table? No, you you need floors and a wall and a roof. I mean, you need the building before you need what goes in it. And yet these people begin with the altar and then they build the temple around it. What does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to build the altar first? Maybe it is the first thing we do in the morning. Maybe that sets our tone for the day. Maybe it's actually adjusting your schedule and saying, I want to start 
with a certain activity. I know for me, a lot of times I'll I'll start. I'm surprised nobody said this. Start by looking at your phone. Start by catching up on email. And, And I've been trying not to do that. I've been trying to start, like give it an hour or more before I even check what the rest of the world is up to. What does it look like to begin? Here's another way to think about it, is that you're going to build your altar first. The question is, which altar are you building? See, other people did build altars in the Old Testament. Uh, Aaron built an altar. Balaam built an altar. But they built altars to false gods. So maybe the first thing you do is your altar. The question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to focus on first thing in the morning? And how can you adjust your mindset so that you begin with God at the center? Build your altar first. Well, as we see these uh, Israelites then doing this, um, they have to wrestle with how to reconstruct this temple in a way that carries on all of what happened in the past. We see them do that as we get to the next section. This is Ezra 3, verses 7 through 9. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year, after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of the kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites, from 20 years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Now, if we were just to read this on our own, as we've done this morning, it just sounds like a construction project. Nothing much special. But if you compare this description of the construction to the construction of the first temple back when Solomon constructed it 500 years prior, you notice these incredible parallels. Right down to the foreigners that they hired, the currency they paid them with, the supervisory structure they set up, everything is almost word for word the same. Think about that. A 500-year span of history, and they're still paying oil to the Sidonians. We can't go a year and keep the same currency, right? (laughs) I mean, that's incredible. So what's the point? The point is that what they are doing here is connected to what they've done in the past. They want to say that this is not a new temple, a brand new effort. This is a rebuilding of the temple that God had done in the past. See, this temple is not an innovation It's a continuation. And yet they're also not just looking at the past as if the past is somehow holy. What they're looking to is how God instructed them in the past. So we see them not honoring the past, but honoring how God had worked 
in the past. And that's the trick for us. As we rebuild, how do we rebuild in the same ways that we've seen God working in the past? How do we honor God's work in the past? We're in a significant period of transition as a church. I think all churches are. Been talking to a lot of pastors and everybody's trying to figure out what does this look like? What's new? What's the same? How do we readjust to a changing world? And the question for us is, how do we balance those parallel temptations? One, on the other hand, of nostalgia, of just thinking that this is the way we've always done it, so we're always going to do it this way, and if we do something new, it must be wrong because it's new. How do we avoid nostalgia? But how do we also avoid that sense of innovation that if it's new, it must be better? And if we could just do the newest, latest, greatest thing, then everything would be awesome. So you can fall off the cliff on both sides. But in the middle is the path of wisdom, of saying our hope is to be continuous with the work of God in the past and drawing that forward into the new situation that we find ourselves. This is our call. And I think this is what we've tried to do as the leadership at PBC. I think we've tried to find continuity with God's work here. A few years ago, we preached a sermon series called PBC DNA, and we highlighted five themes that we've seen. This was essentially our effort to say, how has God worked here in this unique place? Those themes were the priority of scripture. So we talked about how we fervently believe that God is to be found primarily revealed most powerfully in the words of the text of the Bible. We talked about the theme of the new covenant, about how we believe that the spirit of God actually indwells us individually and as a community and works through us. That's not by our effort that ministry happens. We talked about um, the ministry of the saints, a phrase that we use around here to say that we believe that it's the church coming together that does the work of God, not the staff or not the professionals, but it's us. We talked about shared leadership, And how we believe that leadership in an organization in the church should be shared across a wide diversity of men and women in different positions with different callings to serve by leading in different areas. And finally, we talked about our mission to the world, that we have a goal here to proclaim faithfully the gospel to a changing culture all the time. And if you look at our history as a church, those five things have been true And I believe they continue to be true, that this is what we are, this is who we are, and this is how we strive to honor God's work in the past by carrying that on in the future. So if we do that, we've seen that these uh, Israelites build the altar, that, that they build it connected to the past, and then they come together. They come together and they worship at that altar. What do they say? What are the words that they focus on as they worship? Let's listen to that in verses 10 and 11. And when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Here's what they sang. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, 
toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they come together, they celebrate the foundation. And what is it that they say? They say, God is good. It's one of the most simple statements that you can make. And yet it's one of the most theologically rich things to acknowledge. God is many things. God is holy. God is loving. God is gracious. And yet at the heart of who God is, at the heart of his character is simply his goodness. God is good. You might also say good is God. And what the Israelites say is two things, actually. First, they speak abstractly. They say, for he is good. But then they also say his loving kindness is shown to us. So it's not just a general goodness. It's a specific goodness to them in love. This is what we see them doing. They worship God for his goodness. Now, this is important because the goodness of God is under attack in our culture. I think this is one of the foundational issues that people simply don't agree with. And they take issue with this idea on both levels. Some people say, God can't be good. How could a God be good who, uh, you know, aligns himself with this political agenda? How could a God be good who says this about sexual boundaries? How could a God be good whose people have done these things in his name? See, so many people in our culture hear about the God that we talk about and say, that God just doesn't seem good. Others take issue on a more personal level. They say, these things that I've been through, a good God wouldn't allow that. How could a good God allow me personally to suffer in the way that I've suffered? If God were good to me, then my life would look differently. I've tried hard. I've done all the right things. And if God were good to me, then wouldn't I be happier? Wouldn't things in my life look a certain way? And so people say either God can't be good or his loving kindness doesn't face me. And that's the calling of us as the church, as God's people to step into our culture and to say, but he is good. And his loving kindness is towards you. If you would turn and receive it. That's why it's so critical for us to continue to proclaim God's goodness in a world that doesn't believe it. To say, we know God to be good. And we know that he's good to us. And so the celebration begins. The people of God gather and they begin to worship God for his goodness. But then we see a, we see a crack of division in the community. We see something happen. Listen to verses 12 through 13. But many of the priests and Levites 
and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is one of the most vivid pictures in the Old Testament of a community gathered together. Everybody is filled with emotion, but they are two very different sets of emotions, two very different reactions to the situation that's before them. Some people weep with a loud voice. Others shout for joy. Now, it's common to hear people say, I don't like change. And it's common to say, people generally have a problem with change. But, but I think that's too simplistic. See, I think it's not change that people are uncomfortable with. It's loss. And the reality is that all change involves loss. Even good change, even good development, something is always lost when something changes. Uh, my wife and I dated long distance for several years before we got engaged. And so uh, when I got around time to plan the proposal, I, I, I had to figure out how to surprise her in some way. So I was living here in the Bay Area. She was living in Texas. And so I had this plan to, to fly where she was and surprise her with an invitation to marry me. And, but I needed to know she would be in a certain place at the right time. So I arranged with one of her friends to say, hey, let's, uh, let's go shopping this Friday at three o'clock. So this friend of hers was going to go pick her up and they were going to go shopping. Um, instead, I show up from California and take her off, whisk her off, ask her to marry me. She says, yes, et cetera, et cetera. But to this day, if you ask her, she will still say, I was really looking forward to going shopping with my friend. <laughs> now, you know, a lesser man would be hurt by that, right? But I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I actually verified with her this week, that she wouldn't have preferred to go shopping with her friend than to marry me. It's just that that was also going to be a fun thing. So can a person be sad for what they've lost and happy for what they've gained at the same time? Can a community grieve something in the past and celebrate the future at the same time? See, that's what we see here doing. We see the people of God gathering, and what we observe is that grief and joy coexist in this community. And while on one hand that's maybe surprising or disturbing, or, or maybe we see that as a, a problem we need to fix. But on the other hand, isn't the goodness of God big enough to absorb both our grief and our joy? Isn't worship a big enough category that we can come to worship with our loss and with our hope, and God's big enough to take all of that? Just read the Psalms. You'll see almost equal amounts of grief and joy. And so when we come to God, 
either as individuals or as a community, we come to him with everything. We worship God with grief and with joy. Worship with grief and joy. Now, you've probably made the connection already, but this passage is, is a particularly relevant to us here at PBC in this season. We have a new worship center. We have remodeled our worship center. And I have literally heard of people weeping because of some of the changes we've made. And I've heard of people shouting with joy. So what do we do with that? What does a community do when a new thing is met with both grief and joy. How do we process that together? Well, for starters, I think that's worship. We can do that. And let me, uh, you know, there's a lot we could say about this. Let me just say three things about what we could do. First of all, is simply the acknowledgement that this is normal. I want to start with an encouragement. It's normal that when things change, there would be grief and joy. Because change always involves loss, and loss is always painful. Every time we've made any change as a church here, there has been grief and there has been joy. Every time the church throughout history has made changes, there have been grief and joy. And so we maybe shouldn't be surprised by this, but maybe should say, what is God doing in us individually and as a community through those emotions? How do we bring those to God in worship? How do we grieve the things that we have lost? And we have lost things. Grief is an appropriate response. And how do we celebrate and anticipate with joy what things might come? And things will come. God will continue to work. That also is an appropriate response. So the worship of God is big enough for both these things. We ought not be surprised about it, but we can use those emotions to enter in to worship. So first, that encouragement. Second, a warning. I want to warn us about letting our experience of worship change or draw our attention away from the content of our worship. See, what we experience when we come to God and worship him is significant. We have to pay attention. What's going on in my heart? Am I grieving? Am I celebrating? Am I lonely? Am I disconnected? Am I excited? What's going on? We, we bring ourselves to God, but the content of our worship is who God is. That's the focus. And there's a temptation to allow what I'm feeling in worship to be confused with the worship itself. To think that that's the important thing. But the reality is that the worship that we give God, the statements we make, that can happen anywhere, in any circumstance, under any setting. I can declare the goodness of God sitting in a chair or sitting in a pew. Because God's goodness doesn't change depending on what I'm sitting in. I, I can proclaim the mercy of a God who loves me under a black ceiling or a white ceiling because the ceiling doesn't change anything about God. And so the content of my worship is exactly the same. I can preach 
The gospel of a God who sacrificed himself to save us to people in the room. I can preach it to people on a camera. In the second service, I can preach it to people sitting outside. I can preach it with cameras in the room, cameras out of the room. It doesn't matter because the gospel is the same, no matter the conditions that I say it in. See, our experience can't draw us away from the content. And honestly, that has been a little disappointing for me over the last several months in terms of how we've responded. I think at times we have let our experience pull us away from the content in both directions. You know, I've heard people say, because of these changes, I can no longer worship. And I think that's, that's not what worship is. You can always worship. doesn't matter if things have changed. And I've heard other people say, now that we have these changes, I can finally worship. And I think that's not true either. You should have always been able to worship because worship is about who God is. And so the calling for us then is to say, how do we focus on God in the midst of our grief, our joy, whatever our experience is, to remember the content of who God is. So first, an encouragement that we ought to expect a lot of different emotions in worship. Second, a warning not to let those emotions draw us away from what worship actually is. And finally, a reminder. See, when we worship, when we gather to worship God, we do so fundamentally looking forward. Listen to what Haggai says. This is Haggai 2, verse 9. This is in response to a similar situation where people felt uh, disappointed in the current state of affairs. And this is what Haggai said. He said, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. See, Haggai says what is to come is greater than what was. And he's not talking about the physical building. He's talking about the grand story of God. And so if we believe in the scriptures and believe that Jesus is returning and will rebuild the new heavens and the new earth, we are fundamentally a people oriented towards the future. Theologians say that the church is an eschatological community. That's a big word to say that we believe that the future is going to be better than the past. That what God is going to do is what we celebrate. Whether it's what happened here five years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago or what's true now or what might be in three years, none of that compares to what God is going to do. None of it compares to the experience of worship that we will have in God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth. It's such a small change from how we might feel here today, from the magnitude of glory that we'll experience when Jesus returns. It's hardly even worth noticing because of how great that's going to be. We are oriented towards what God's going to do in the future. So an encouragement to say that we ought to expect this, a warning not to let ourselves get distracted from who God is, and a reminder 
that what God will do when he returns is better than anything we could imagine or experience here and now. Let me go back to the question that I began with. What is the first thing that you do in the morning? Think again about that. Think again about just that rhythm that we have as people. We start our day. We open our eyes. We wake up and we do certain things. There's some sequence of events. You empty the dishwasher. You have coffee. You pray. You, whatever it is, our day begins. And the course of our day is set and our hearts are oriented in a certain way. What does it look like to build the altar first? We've seen these Israelites as they've come back to Jerusalem. They start by building the altar. And then we hear them lay the foundation of the temple in a way that connects them to the past, that parallels the way the first temple was built. Then we see them gather in celebration and focus on God's goodness. And then we see their experience diverge into grief and joy at what they see. But the common thread through all of this is that God is the focus. God is at the center. I want to invite the band to come back up. And I want to pray for us as we move into another time of singing to God. And I want to invite you to, to keep those things in mind as we worship again. You know, we, we call what we do here, we call this worship. This is, now we're going to go into a time of worship. Really, we've been worshiping this whole time. But we're going to go into a time of worship through song. And I want to invite you to center your minds on that simple idea that God is good. That he is good to us individually and as a community. And whether we are grieving something real that we've lost or whether we're excited for what might come or whatever the emotions we bring to worship are, the truth of worship of God's goodness never changes. Let me pray. God, thank you that we uh, can be drawn together in all of our experiences, whether it's, it's good or bad or frustrating or exhilarating, whether we feel close to you or feel far away, whether we are consumed by what's going on in our lives or whether we are enraptured by your presence in this place. The truth of what we say is the same. You are good. And your loving kindness extends to us. May we declare that faithfully. May we know it in our hearts and may it change the way we live during our week. In Jesus' name, amen.